Welcome to the Greater Possibilities podcast from Invesco, where we put your concerns into context and the opportunities into focus. I'm Brian Levitt. And I'm Jody Phillips. Welcome to our first podcast of 2024, Brian. Yeah, it's good to be here. We made it. We made it. Well, we'll see if you still think it's good to be here. Uh, You're on the hot seat today. Uh, so, uh, the, yeah. this is all resting on your shoulders today, but look, I know you closed out 23 with a lot of traveling across the U S speaking to investors. So I thought today we'd cover the top 10 questions you've been getting, uh, and just to up the level of difficulty a little bit, uh, let's give you three points or fewer to answer oh, wow. each of those questions. What do you think? Okay. Can you do it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a kid from New Jersey. I can't really say my name in three points, but we'll <laughs> we'll give it a try. All right, all right. Well, we won't count too formally, but we'll you get the no gist. Buzzer. But no, but no buzzer. No, we don't no have buzzer. sound effects. No shots. Yet, okay, but... good. All right, you want to dive in? Yeah, let's do question it. Question one. Question one. All right, Brian. Why wasn't there a U.S. recession in 2023, despite all of the predictions to the contrary? I'd say first the consumer in good shape. The job ra- job unemployment rate is low. So that would be one, the consumer's feeling good. Two, there's not a lot of leverage in the economy. Typically, when you see the Fed raise rates, um, that impacts people. Right. A lot of people have loans that they either have to, uh, re- you know, they have to come back to market to, to fund, um, just not a lot this time. And Three, we never really got a chance to build up cyclical excess, meaning, remember, the challenge was businesses didn't even have inventory. Right. Right. Or there weren't a lot of homes for sale. So we never really built, we couldn't find cars, right? So we never (laughs) built up the cyclical excesses that typically lead to a recession. Okay. How was that? Three bullets. Three bullets. You did it. Was that too much or that's what with three bullets? That's good. Three bullets. That's good. All right. That's only question one, two. So uh, nine more to go. Let's see this. (laughs) Question two. All right. Let's let's focus in on U.S. stocks, right? Specifically the S&P 500 last year, largely driven by a handful of stocks. I think some call them what the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, the concentrated market. That's right. So why, where are we with that? Is, is that trend going to continue? Is this going to broaden? What are, you, what are you expecting to see this year? Well, the first thing is I like to remind people that it wasn't always a concentrated trade. People make it out like as, as if the whole year was very concentrated. When the market bottomed in the middle of October 2022 and it rallied through February of three, that, 23, that wasn't concentrated. That was a soft landing trade. Rising tide lifted a lot of boats. Um, Then the Silicon Valley Bank failed. So there was concern um, about the banking system and the economy. And then we actually got concerns that the economy was too hot. That's right. And so the Fed was going to have to really, really raise rates. So that was really post-February and then into the spring and summer. That was the concentrated market. Um, Not November, December. Okay. The market was not concentrated at all in November, December. That's when the soft landing trade reemerged. That's where we've been. We'll see if things, uh, you know, get a little bit more concentrated as as things slow down here in the economy. My memory failed me. It seems like just yesterday and a million years ago at the same time. I don't know how that works, (laughs) but that's the phenomenon. I know, right? I know. All right. Question three. We're going to stick with um, the S&P 500. 
So the index, it gained, what, nine something percent, 9.1% in November, about four and a half percent in December. So I heard you say the other day that you wished those gains hadn't been quite so sharp over those past two months. And I got to say, that seems a little counterintuitive to me, Brian. So why, what's driving that? Why do you think, was it too much too soon? Yeah, I mean, and, and it wasn't even just the S&P 500. If you look at the Russell 2000, which is the small cap index, that was up 21%. Mid caps were up 18%. So we had a market call of a soft landing trade. And the soft landing trade was going to be beneficial to many different, you know, multiple capitalization or the capitalization sure. range, smaller caps. So um, I just, one, my point would be, I just wish it played out over a longer period, giving investors more time to get involved. Mm, right. If they yeah. weren't in favor of small or mid cap or value, you get these really big moves over a very short period of time Two, um, it's unlikely we see those outside gains again in the near term. And, you know, that's not a negative call on equities. It's just to say that was a tremendous move um, and it was broad. And so unlikely we'll see those broad market moves that favor you know, all stocks. Um, is that the three, everything I, bull? Is that, uh, is that the everything bull market you like to say? All right. Yeah, it, felt like, it felt a lot like an everything bull market, whether you were in bonds or whatever type of equities. And then three, look, it's still favored. The environment still favors equities over the next few years, peak inflation, peak tightening. It's just to say that we got a lot quick and I would have right. rathered investors had more time to enjoy it. Okay. All right. Four. So you said it's unlikely we'll see those same types of gains in the near term. Why not? Yeah. And I think it makes sense to say near term, call it the next three to mm -hmm. six months. Okay. Um, well, one, the market priced in six interest rate hikes very quickly. <laughs> yeah. That, that's right. a little bit to absorb. Sure. So it was, you know, it was like rates are going to go from five and a quarter to the, the big CEOs of the bank saying go mm -hmm. 7%. Now all of a sudden it's 350 by the end of next year. So that was a lot quickly. I understand what the market is thinking, but the Fed could still very well underwhelm that. And they probably will underwhelm the market. Okay. okay. Two, look, U.S. growth um, is, is back below trend again. So you and I and the consumers, we did a good job of, of moving this thing along. And we were actually above trend growth latter part of 23. We're, we're back, um, call it below trend again. That doesn't mean that we're heading into a recession. It just means that we're slower than what we typically are. So, you know, you take those two, I would say number three, we could just be left waiting for a catalyst, like a sign that the Fed is really going to ease or a sign that the economy is not going into a recession. We probably just need um, some type of catalyst, but that may not come over <laughs> the next few months. Understood. What, what might a catalyst look like? I mean, the catalyst typically would come from the view that we're going to really renormalize the yield curve, normalize the yield curve. So um, inflation, you know, passe, it's over, which I think we're getting there. Growth hanging in. And, you know, that that soft landing trade can reemerge, you know, in the next weeks, it might be, well, we just might not get as much from the Fed. Inflation's too sticky or, well, this economy, you know, so... Um, you just need more clarity now on the soft landing trade, and it may take a little time to get there. Okay. Well, that was a follow-up, so we're not counting that against your three points. So you're no, still – your streak continues. That's All right. 
<laughs> question oh, that is fair, then. I thought, that is I thought, fair. I, that is fair. No, okay, good. I thought you were going to say you're not counting that as a question. So are no, we doing no, 11 now? No, no, I wasn't now? counting that okay. as an extra point. No, no, still good, still good. All right, so question five. Um, S&P 500 hit a new record close in January. Is that something to worry about? No. And um, the first thing I would say, I quote uh, Sir Arthur Clarke, I've done this for years in meetings, which is to say that only small minds are impressed by large numbers. Now, right, I feel called out now. <laughs> well, yeah, no, not you. Um, I know it's bad. I, so I'm telling an audience that they have small minds. No, I'm just reminding them not to be impressed. Nobody has small mind, just reminding them not to be impressed by large numbers. Fair enough, fair enough. So, so when we hit the new high, uh, was it Friday, January 19th, 19th. Mm -hmm. um, that was the 1158th new high <laughs> of the S. Yeah, I counted them of the thank God for Excel <laughs> of the S&P 500 since 1957. So that's once every fortnight. That's once every couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you shouldn't be all that impressed by a new high when they on average happen once every couple of weeks. And three, I think the biggest thing is that the market averages are not mean reverting, right? So they're not mm -hmm. going to come back to some mean. Um, if you think that the world is going to get better for us, for people, for economies and I guess most importantly, the 500 biggest companies in the United <laughs> States, then markets should see many new record highs over the course of our lives. All right. All right. Question six. So January, January is a notorious month for uh, those investors who like to see patterns in the calendar. Um, the January effect, the belief that in any given year, January tends to be the strongest month for U.S. equity returns. So do you believe there's some kind of predictive power to what happens in January? Is this going to set the stage for the rest of the year? Yeah, when you started talking about January and, and perhaps some challenges that we had in the beginning of them, I thought you were going to mention the NFC East. Um, or, <laughs> I can't point out your Houston Texans. Don't do it. Don't go to the AFC no, South. No, no, that please. was impressive. <laughs> they're, they're ahead of schedule. So, um, yeah, I mean, January started off challenged, and I think that's why this question has come up. People, you know, the first couple of weeks weren't great. Um, so I think people got a little concerned about that. No, um, you know, the reality is that when January is positive, so this is where this comes from, the market is positive in 80% of the years that are looked at. Okay. Um, that sounds very impressive, but when you consider that markets go up 75% of the time or every three and four <laughs> years, it's probably not that statistically significant. Also, it's predictive power significantly less when January is negative. So the probability of having a, a negative year when January is negative is really no better than a coin toss. Okay. Um, and so as always, don't try and time these things. A buy and hold approach buy is, and hold. <laughs> is much better than trying to time things based on whether January is good. All right, question seven, um, market leadership. How do you think that's going to play out over the next, say, year or two? Yeah, so that gets back to what we were talking about with the everything bull market, right? Yep. And what did clients, you know, what did we wish took longer? Um, you may actually, like that was, we talked about it, small caps, mid caps, value all did well. You may, I would say one, you may see more quality leadership in the near term. Um, that goes back to that catalyst, okay. right? We need to reaffirm yep. that soft landing trade. Um, 
Two, ultimately, if you're an investor and you're not just looking very near term, I would view all of this from the perspective of getting out of this bizarre COVID environment, finally, <laughs> once finally. and for all. And, and so the clock has started on the Fed cutting interest rates, right? The next few months are going to be, will they, won't they, should they, can they? But then over time, it's pretty clear to us that the Fed will normalize the yield curve. And as that happens, you tend to get the broader market participation. And that's when you'll get um, the shift away from what we think will be in the near term equality trade back towards more small cap value and international. International. Okay. So let's talk about that a little more. What's the story there? What are some of the reasons, in your opinion, that investors might want to consider international? Yeah. So Jody, that's point. question yeah. eight. For it you, is. That's, I think that's question one uh, that I typically, mm. well, one might be about elections, but we're going to cover that in other podcasts. Um, <laughs> but this right. idea about international after multiple years of underperformance, um, let's do the one, two, three. One, the post-global financial crisis environment was very slow. So investors were, you know, all these years of underperformance. Um, that was a slow growth world. You could pretty much set your watch to 2% GDP growth in the US, very slow growth. And so international markets, value markets, they, they tend to need better macro environments. They tend to need growth picking up, nominal activity picking up. And we didn't get that. Uh, now, two, each time it appeared to be coming, like yep. some synchronization, some pickup yep. in global growth, the U.S. tightened policy. <laughs> and, and in hindsight, and I was saying it at the time, um, inexplicably, tightened policy. So 2015, the Fed raised rates, attempting to be the first central bank in the history of the world to raise rates during a slow growth deflationary environment. Okay, Then they backed off and said, OK, just kidding. And 2016 and 2017 were great years for international markets. Mm. Okay, mm -hmm. particularly yep. the emerging markets, right? It's really good times. The Fed had backed off. Well, what did we get in 18? The trade war, more interest rate hikes, and then the Trump administration gave us more clarity on trade. The Fed said, okay, just kidding again. And then 2019, we got started to get more broader regional participation, then COVID hit. And, COVID. and we shut yep. down. So you never really got a chance. Um, and so investors think of it as, well, never happened for 10, 15 years, can't ever happen again. That was a very unique post-GFC global financial crisis environment. So what may be happening now is, if you think about it from that perspective of tightening policy at inopportune times, we haven't even started easing yet. Right, that's right. So maybe a long time before we're tightening policy. That tends to suggest the dollar peaks it may have already peaked just because of interest rate differentials sure, between the U.S. Sure. and the rest of the world. And valuations are more attractive. So if money is going to be looking for a different home than the U.S. dollar and the economy's good, money may start to flow to other parts of the world where valuations are more attractive. Okay. All right. Question nine. Uh yeah, so we've already established that I'm not supposed to be impressed by large numbers, uh, but U.S. U.S. debt it's a over 34 trillion. I mean, that come on, <laughs> that's a, that's an impressive number. That at least does for, impress you, 34 trillion. Yeah, 34 trillion with a T for sure. But that scares people. So, so what do we sure, say about sure this? Does. One, 
very happy to live in a country that was able to respond to the last two crises. Yep. Okay. So the reason that we've seen significant rise in debt over the last decade um, plus is we had to respond to the global financial crisis. Um, we had to respond to COVID and COVID was call it four to six trillion of additional spending. Now, maybe we overdid it, but I'm happy that we got beyond each of those environments without depressions. Yes. Really, really critical and really, really impressive that we were able to do that. So that's one. Before we get nervous, let's be happy we can fund this debt. Um, two, I think people underestimate how wealthy a country the United States is. So, Jody, you want me to impress you with some large numbers again? Please, please do. The debt is $34 trillion. U.S. household net worth mm -hmm. is $150 trillion, five times the size of the debt. So think about it. I mean, are we a good credit? The the, the net worth of our <laughs> sure household like is five yes. X. This, yes. So I, you know, so I, I wish the my household net worth was five X the size of a <laughs> mortgage, right? I mean, you know, it's like, think about yeah, it. Yeah, it's all relative. Okay. And then um, three, there's a captive audience for U.S. bonds. The government buys, you know, the Fed buys some of it, the Social Security Trust Fund, things like so government entities, U.S. savers, like my dad, um, and uh, U.S. financial institutions, U.S. mutual funds, U.S. endowments, U.S. pensions, U.S. insurance companies, and then foreign investors like the Germans, the Japanese, and the Brits who can't get higher yields in their home countries. So... There's a pretty captive audience. So no, I'm not worried about the U.S. debt. Good. And now neither am I. Thank you. All right. <laughs> but Question. You're not but impressed. worried, but you're Still impressed. impressed. It's, it's still, still impressed. a big number. It is impressive. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question 10. Um, how concerned should investors be about geopolitical events, right? We look at what's going on, particularly in the Red Sea. We've got shipping companies that have been diverting their routes like an extra 4,000 miles in order yeah. to avoid attacks in that area. And so are those shipping disruptions going to lead to the type of inflation we saw a few years ago when ships were, were backed up at the port of Los Angeles, for example? Yeah, right. That is the iconic image, I think, of or one yeah. of the iconic images of COVID. There's actually too many iconic images of COVID, but that was one of them. Okay, one, regional events have tended to not disrupt markets. So we'll, you know, the, I say regional, I think that's the critical word. If this gets significantly broader and the powers that be don't seem to want it to, even with the tit for tat that's going on, um, regional events have tended to not disrupt for markets. And since October 7th, um, when Hamas went into Israel, this time has been no different, right? The markets have looked beyond it. I always say, so point two, I always tell people, ask yourself, is what's going to going on going to change the direction of the U.S. economy, or what the Fed will be doing? And so usually the answer that, particularly after Hamas went into Israel and then Israel went into Gaza, um, the answer to that was no, not really. It's not going to change the direction of the U.S. economy or what the Fed will be doing. But then your point about trade. So point three, it's not insignificant. OK, so I don't want to sugarcoat it, but let's at least put it into perspective. Um, the Red Sea. So the, the ship is going the ships going through the Red Sea. That amounts for about 15 percent of global trade. OK, 
Okay, so 85% is, is not going to necessarily be impacted by this. And going around the Cape of Good Hope, to your point, in, in at Southern Africa does add costs. And so some of that may be inflationary. It's not ideal, um, particularly when your market outlook is based on inflation being tamed. Um, but I'd argue that the 20, if, if we really think about where inflation came from, it really came from businesses slashing inventories and slashing workers when COVID hit. And in hindsight, they did it at a really inopportune time and then struggled for a couple of years to rebuild inventory and get workers back. That's not the case now. All right, we're looking at record levels of inventory, not from an inventory to sales ratio, but in nominal terms, record levels of inventory um, and record number of workers, right? And a record low on or near record low unemployment rate. So it's just, yeah, we watch geopolitical, but it's not, it doesn't drive the base case of our views. Okay. Whew. You made it. 10. 10 questions. So, so did I speak each? more or less than you expected? I don't know. I'll, uh, I'll I'll gauge when I get the transcript. I'll do the word count. You can edit me. <laughs> we always have that power. So uh, yes, but no, seriously, thank you. Thank you for uh, doing this little exercise and rest assured you will not be on the hot seat for the next episode. We've got some great episodes that are coming up, uh, planning one to talk about the presidential election, of course, uh, of course. definitely a hot topic of conversation. We're going to talk about Bitcoin in a future episode. So looking forward to that. Um, be sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you haven't already, you'll get them as soon as they release. And and Brian, where can listeners get more from you? Oh, thanks for asking. So visit Invesco.com slash Brian Levitt to read my latest commentaries. And of course, you can always follow me on LinkedIn and on X, I think I'm supposed to say formerly known as Twitter, at <laughs> Brian Levitt. All right, thanks for listening. Thanks, Jody. You've been listening to Invesco's Greater Possibilities podcast. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are based on current market conditions as of January 23, 2024, and are subject to change without notice. These opinions may differ from those of other Invesco investment professionals. Invesco is not affiliated with any of the companies or individuals mentioned herein. This does not constitute a recommendation of any investment strategy or product for a particular investor. Investors should consult a financial professional before making any investment decisions. Should this contain any forward-looking statements, understand they are not guarantees of future results. They involve risks, uncertainties, and assumptions. There can be no assurance that actual results will not differ materially from expectations. All investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. An investment cannot be made directly in an index. In general, stock values fluctuate sometimes widely in response to activities specific to the company, as well as general market economic and political conditions. The risks of investing in securities of foreign issuers, including emerging market issuers, can include fluctuations in foreign currencies, political and economic instability, and foreign taxation issues. Stocks of small and mid-sized companies tend to be more vulnerable to adverse developments, may be more volatile, and may be illiquid or restricted as to resale. A value style of investing is subject to the risk that valuations never improve, or that the returns will trail other styles of investing or the overall stock markets. Fixed income investments are subject to credit risk of the issuer and the effects of changing interest rates. 
Interest rate risk refers to the risk that bond prices generally fall as interest rates rise and vice versa. An issuer may be unable to meet interest and or principal payments, thereby causing its instruments to decrease in value and lowering the issuer's credit rating. All index returns sourced from Bloomberg LP as of December 31, 2023. The Russell 2000 Index is an unmanaged index considered representative of small cap stocks and returned 21% over November and December 2023. References to mid cap stocks refer to the Russell Mid Cap Index. The Russell Mid Cap Index is an unmanaged index considered representative of mid cap stocks and returned 18% over those two months. The Russell 1000 Value Index is an unmanaged index considered representative of large-cap value stocks and returned 13% over those two months. Russell Indexes are trademark service marks of the Frank Russell Company. The S&P 500 Index is an unmanaged index considered representative of the U.S. stock market. An investment cannot be made directly in an index. Statements about the market pricing and interest rates cuts are based on Fed Funds Futures, sourced from Bloomberg as of January 24, 2024. Fed Funds Futures are financial contracts that represent the market's opinion of where the federal funds rate will be at a specific point in the future. The federal funds rate is the rate at which banks lend balances to each other overnight. The number of new market highs sourced from Bloomberg as of January 24, 2024, based on the S&P 500 index from 1957 to current. Discussions about historical market performance in January are based on yearly S&P 500 price index data from 1928 through 2023, sourced from Bloomberg as of December 31, 2023. Comments about the 2016 and 2017 performance of international and emerging market stocks based on the returns of the MSCI ACWI XUSA and MSCI Emerging Market Indexes, sourced from Bloomberg. The MSCI ACWI XUSA index returned 4.50% in 2016 and 27.19% in 2017. The MSCI Emerging Market Index returned 11.19% in 2016 and 37.28% in 2017. The MSCI ACWI XUSA Index is an unmanaged index considered representative of large and mid-cap stocks across developed and emerging markets excluding the U.S. The MSCI Emerging Market Index captures large and mid-cap representation across 26 emerging market countries. Data on the size of the U.S. debt, COVID spending, and U.S. household net worth, all from the U.S. Treasury Department as of January 24, 2024. Information on the amount of global trade passing through the Red Sea is from S&P Global Market Intelligence. Tightening monetary policy includes actions by a central bank to curb inflation. The Magnificent Seven refers to Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, Nvidia, and Tesla. The yield curve plots interest rates at a set point in time of bonds having equal credit quality but differing maturity dates. Gross domestic product, or GDP, is a broad indicator of a region's economic activity, measuring the monetary value of all the finished goods and services produced in that region over a specified period of time. The Greater Possibilities podcast is brought to you by Invesco Distributors, Inc.